0: 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the, the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the best way to think about this Gog and Magog you know, text is to understand that this is referencing something bigger than just Babylon, Syria, or even our just normal everyday kind of threats and circumstances. This is dealing with that kind of whole world of the kingdom of darkness that God will finally put to its end. The picture here is a final battle in Revelation 20 between God and Satan. Satan will be loosed at that point and Gog and Magog are appointed to make one final play, one final assault against the kingdom of God and they will utterly fail. God will thwart every attempt and he will finally put down sin and death for the final time. So if I'm looking at this text, this is this is where I think it seems to me, and many others I've read on the subject, that Gog and Magog are who? They typify the dominion of darkness that has pervaded the known world ever since the fall in the garden. They, they, that Gog and Magog are that coalition of powers that, that embody that the godlessness of nations and regimes and any other forms that may be out there. They are set against God and his sovereign rule over the world. And they've been there since the beginning. And they've been living under the regime, the, maybe the silent rule, if you will, of Satan. And they have been put, they have they've set themselves against the sovereign rule of God. Now, there's, but there's more here, I think, in this text, that Gog and Magog don't just Typify that all of that from from creation till the end, but more specifically here in this text, the dominion of darkness is going to be summoned, as I said already, by God to make one final assault against the people under their under God's rule and say, under their rule and Satan in, in, in I'm sorry in what we know as the battle of Armageddon. So Gog is bent in the land of Magog as a war people. But their people, their war people are not people of physical war per se. It's not, our, what, is, what does Ephesians say? Our, our battle is not of flesh and blood. What? But the principalities and the powers of darkness, right? This is what Gog and Magog are. They are bent against war, against the spiritual war, against the kingdom of God. Um, and the description has it in our text here. And we even saw a little bit of it in, uh, in Revelation 20. Yeah, he has a vast army. And horses and horsemen fully armed. And Magog is kind of, again, not knowing what it is, is this coalition. You got Meshach and Tubal. you got all these other nations around, it even goes down to the south, right? To Cush and Put and all the ones coming out of Africa. In other words, out of the four corners of the earth, what does that represent? The, the dominion of darkness that is that has set itself against the power and the sovereignty of God. They will come from the furthest reaches of the world. And God will now, he's, he's, he's kind of baiting them. He's baiting Gog. He's baiting Gog in his arrogance. But here's the thing that we've got to remember here. Their powers are still limited. As powerful and strong and as vast as these armies may appear, God controls the powers of Gog and Magog, like it says there in verse 4 of 38, like a fisherman who has his fish in, by a hook. That even Gog and Magog, and all their arrogance, thinking that they rule the world and that they can have total dominion over all that God has created, God himself says, nope, you're nothing more than than, than, than a, a fish on a hook. And I'm going to guide and I'm going to do, and you're going to be used, like I have used every other power, you're going to be used for my purposes in the world. And that's something that we don't often think about, do we? We don't often think that of, we think about the big baddie powers in the world and we get worried about threats that come around with us. But we oftentimes forget that even those forces are under the sovereign rule of God. And he has them by a fish hook and he's guiding and using them as he wishes. And so Gog's offense, well, it says here in the text, will be against a defenseless people of God. It says they have their unwalled villages. If you look at the ESV, uh, peaceful and unsuspecting people. Um, they have no gates. They have no bars. And it says Gog's, I mean, God's people will be plundered. They will be plundered again by these nations of darkness. One, and one last attempt to foil the sovereign rule of God. So that's the first thing we got to think about in terms of Ezekiel. Like set Ezekiel forward, and this is what God is doing. He is, he's summoning the powers of darkness for one final battle. But here's the second part of Ezekiel that we need to think about, that Ezekiel has in his sights that it's not just this one final battle, but it's God's complete and final intervention for God's people, for his creation, for the vindication of his name, and for the good of his own people. Now that's what Ezekiel has in mind. He's looking beyond the moment that the exiles are in there in Babylon, because Babylon's already weakening. Persia's getting ready to come in. He's looking beyond Persia. He's looked he certainly looked beyond Assyria and Egypt. He's already vindicated them in those regards. These people, these, these nations are being put to, putting, put down for sure. But this is looking toward towards his sights of God, completely putting an end to spiritual darkness across the globe. God will not stand helplessly aside as his people suffer under God's deathly rule anymore. And does that bring you hope? I mean, I hope it does. That your God in heaven is not going to stand aside forever and allow things to be as they are. And that he's going to come and that God, the powers of dominion of the earth, they're going to suffer for their crimes. They are whom do we have or what do we have to fear we don't again god is essentially baiting gog all right, into a final showdown and god's weapons are not like gog's weapons as vast as they may seem the sands of the of the of the beaches right of all of the world they have Shields and horsemen and all in their own, in their in their in their beauty and, and power as they may be. But what are God's weapons? It says there in verses nineteen through twenty-two: a great earthquake. What can you do against a great earthquake with a sword and a shield? A plagues and bloodshed, torrents of rain, hailstones, burning sulfur. Even goes so far in verse twenty-one as to say he even uses their swords against each other. So even their swords aren't even a threat to him. Their swords are a threat to themselves. This is, this is how God puts in to nations. Nations and their arrogance who don't recognize who God is. God will turn their own devices against them. And then verse 30, chapter 39 gives us a little bit more clarity. Again, I won't have time to get into this. I trust that you can read on your own. But it brings more greater detail to the deliverance of his people over Gog. Number one it says that God will strike Gog, his bow, right in his arm, and it will. And his arm literally won't even be able to lift his bow, and his arrows won't even be able to be shot anymore because he is he's utterly incapacitated Gog's ability to even take to to take retribution against God when he when he assaults when he comes in to put death to death. God won't even be able to lift his bow to him, and there. Bodies will be left scattered across the mountains of Israel and they'll be left to the prey of the wild beasts. Not only that, so vast and so utterly complete will be this destruction. It says it'll take seven months for Israel to bury the dead. What's more, it'll take seven years for them to use all that weaponry, wood shields and whatever, and all that stuff for fuel for them to live for seven years. Now, again, the word seven here is an important word, and it's a usage in Scripture. And, it's, and some people want to read into that seven years in terms of a future reality. I do not do that. I believe the word seven has been used as a point, as a, as a point of completion. Like on the Sabbath day, God completed all of His work, and He rested and so to properly understand this seven here is not to kind of look forward and try to determine when these seven years are going to happen in this seven years tribulation. I, I don't, I'm, not in, I'm not in that camp. It's okay if you are, but I'm not in that camp. I just At the end of the day, what Ezekiel is pointing to is very simple. God's going to complete His work in this day. And He's going to destroy it, and there will be nothing left to resurrect from that <laughs> dominion of darkness. Not one single fabric, not one single... Not one single... Piece of sand, dirt—nothing will be able to resurrect from this utter destruction over death. So now, having understood the text, I just want to spend the rest of my time, the balance of my time this morning, just thinking about what does this mean for you and me as we look at twenty twenty three and beyond. And trust me, I've been there. I, I've wrestled with like, what, what does the future hold? How, how, how God are you going to work? I mean, it seems very it seems like we live in discouraging times, and and perhaps we and we are. Well, I think we need to look at at least three points here that I want us to just think about. Number one, God's people will face perpetual tribulation in this life until the final battle between God and Satan. So one of the things that Ezekiel is doing is that he's basically saying there's more to come, but God's got that too. And you're going to face difficulties until that time comes just as well. And so don't think that this is the end of all of your struggles and your challenges, God's people. No, the realm of darkness is an expansive evil that has smothered the earth ever since that that dreaded day in the garden. And God's people will face troubles right up until the end when Jesus returns. I believe that with all my heart. I believe we will struggle with those things all the way till the end. Because the ruthless indifference of the evil's objectives for us must not be disregarded, right? If we believe that that's true, we believe that evil is a consuming reality in the world, though one that is limited, we'll talk about that here in a second, we must remind ourselves as we think about these days ahead that we must be always on guard for their, of the evil objectives. They're always lying in wait behind all these different things. And we do right to think about what's happening among, in our world systems around here. And we should speak truth and, and speak the gospel and preach the gospel in all these areas For without, with full certainty. And we must recognize that the scale of opposition between now until the time Jesus returns, is a grand opposition, a grand spiritual opposition in darkness that is huge beyond what the mind can conceive. It's incalculable. All right? That same reality that, we, that, that, that the Israelites have faced back in the exiles are the same realities as we, the new exile, the exilic people the church, the pilgrim people of the church, are still living with in this very moment. And we must recognize that those things are there. But, as I said a minute ago, have no fear, brothers and sisters, because their, their, their influence and their power has limitations to it. We see this in Job. Even Satan had to go and ask for permission to persecute Job. And that's a reality that we must take seriously even in our moment. That when, Je- especially now that Jesus has come in the first advent and then we look toward the second advent, he has come and he has definitively said, my kingdom is here. Now, it's more to come and yet to come, and there are aspects of that that are a mystery to us until that point comes. But the reality is in the first coming of Jesus, you and I now live in knowing that the nations have always been been an instrument in God's hands. They've always been limited in their influence. And what is the reason why these, these nations exist? Is it not always been for the sanctification of God's people? And every season where these nations have risen up has it not always been God reminding His people that your mind and your heart and your minds are drifting towards these things these other nations are offering. And I'm going to raise these nations up to show you that they all do not offer you life, they only offer you death. So that the nations, even in this very moment that we live in today, nations are an instrument to our sanctification. And that's what you and I have got to hold right there in that moment, Right? Like we can look and we can always look at the world and say, oh man, look at all these sinners who are misrepresenting and and, and countering and and blurring what God has said is good. Yes, we can say that. But what God wants most from us in in these days is to look at ourselves and say, how are we being shaped and formed by the glory of God until he returns in the midst of those realities? In the midst of those realities? What this means for us is that God's people, as I said a minute ago, are in this day and really in all days, are not a people who are defined by nation boundaries and states boundaries, but we are people who are in exilic people, a pilgrim people. We saw this in, we saw this in Daniel. We saw this in First Peter. We are a pilgrim people, being sanctified through our diverse circumstances until Jesus returns. That's where we are. See, God's people usually find ourselves, do we not, worried about sinners and what they're doing to the world we live in and that exists in the world, but the better use of our time, as I've said already, would be what? To to consider how the darkness exists among us and how we might live in repentance and faith in light of what Christ has accomplished. That we, as an embassy of the kingdom of God, as the church, now live always with Christ in mind and the kingdom of God in view, and we live with that as we live as pilgrims in this moment. I would call us to do think about that. I mean, Why are we surprised when the world actually is the world? Does it mean that we don't speak truth in those moments? Of course it means we speak the truth in those moments. But the larger thing that we hold on to is that that truth permeates our own hearts continues to transform us as we are his people. We would be do better to rather focus on the ongoing progressive sanctification of, God, of God's church until Jesus returns. And friends, this is just a side note here. This is one of the things why it's really, really an oxymoron in the Bible to be a churchless Christian. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian. Christian is someone who is embedded in grain and ingrained with the body of Christ together. Why? Because we are not meant to live as individual in embassies. You're not an individual embassy. You are united with the church as the embassy of Christ on this earth. And we need to do this together. Why? Because we live as a display to the rest of the world what God's kingdom is going to be like when Jesus returns. And you can't do that alone. God has never defined, never, never designed us to do that alone. So brothers and sisters, wherever you are, and I, I, don't, I don't pretend to know any one thing about anyone in this room, but if you do not have a church home, first of all, if that's where you are this morning, please come talk to me. I would love to help you know what it means to be a part of this body of Christ. But if not, find somewhere and be yoked with those believers together so that we would be a display of God's glory and God's grace to the world. And just know, though, to be a part of this intimacy, and it's already said it in the text, is we're not defined by gates and bars and walls to the villages and arms and armies and all the things that do this, but by the peace and prosperity that we have received in Jesus. That is what defines our communion. That is what defines our embassy as Christ's followers. So we should never live as in exile as Christians from Christians. We should live as exiles from the world with Christians, with believers together. Sad history tells us of several preachers who have chosen because they thought that the church was not worthy of their theological acumen, that they, they ended their life estranged from the church. One of my favorites is A.W. Tozer. Like he, he, he ended his life... Not a member of a local church because he couldn't find a church that was worthy of his theological reflection. And there was others, guys just like that. May that never be said of us in this room. It's not about the totality of our theological acumen. It's about the fact that we are all part of the church living together as the embassy of Christ until he returns. So let me just tell you up front where I believe right here presently in this age. What I believe where we stand in terms of all these realities when it comes to Ezekiel. I take the view that the millennium is that time that was inaugurated in Christ's first advent and, will be, and, it'll, be, and it'll come to a conclusion when Christ comes again. Okay, That's where I am. I don't believe the millennium will be a, be a time in the future. I believe we are there now in that. And that's a time now that we, we will observe in the church relative prosperity, not without, by the way, not without the, the, the assaults of Satan, but Satan even has a limited rule now. That God has restrained him through the work of his son because he's overcome death. And Satan's rule now is a, an exasperated rule. He's going to, he's going to cat and claw at everything until, until Jesus returns. But now that rule comes. This is what we call the amillennial perspective. And again, I want to make sure they say this is a happy, open discussion among genuine believers that we might disagree on some of these things. And that is fine. I just have found this one to be the most consistent and the most one that we see in our church fathers throughout history. I just find these things to be the most the most logical way, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But again, I'm comfortable enough to let you know that this is an open-handed issue for me. And, and as far as I'm concerned in this church, it's still an open-handed in this church. We don't want this to be an issue of division. It's, it's a minute to be one of charity. But nonetheless, the reason I say that to you, even, even why, is not because I want you to like, stake my claim here. That, that means nothing to me. But we recognize that that millennium means that, that Satan, though roving around the world doing his work and trying to cause problems, he is still limited in his capacity to do so. And then there's a day coming, as it says in Revelation, that that Jesus will come and he will unloose Satan, and Satan will have one last final bid, again, with Gog and Magog, to make his final destructive powers be known, and God will put him down finally and fully. But in this age, he's still there causing division in the church, He wants to divide you and I. He wants us to get focused on other, every other matter in the world besides keeping our eyes on Jesus. He's still out there trying to distract the church with worldly matters. He wants us to be, absurd, to be, to be so concerned with, the, with what's coming over the news wire. He wants us to cause suspicion in how to trust things. He wants those things to happen within the church so that the church is distracted by those things, and that would be a shame to the church. He also wants to blind the church from our attention upon Jesus and his work as the sole objective of our affections, the sole focus of our object, that he would wants to, wants to blind us from seeing what Christ has done and all the accomplishments that go along with it. But even in the future, God is the grand instigator, as I've said already, for Satan. He will loose him from his chains. And these dark forces in that final eschatological conflict will come to there. God is planting the snare. He is for Satan in the dominions of darkness. And here is the final verdict: God wins. Regardless if you agree on every little giant and tittle what I just said, just know that that's where we all agree, right? God wins. And that's the second point that I want to reflect on for a few months before we move into our conclusion. If God wins, we need to know that, that, how, what that means in definition. There was a popular book that came out a few years ago by a pastor named Rob Bell, who I don't know that he even confesses to be a Christian now anymore, or at least not in any orthodox sense of the word. But his book that he wrote, and I think maybe you've come across it, maybe you read it, it's called Love Wins. Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds great. In it, he sees the final, if you want to use that word, eschatological end of humanity as an expansive and inclusive love over all the earth that extends to all religious points of view, sexual lifestyles, this grand communion of humanity that spans all conceivable distinctions and divisions. This is what he understands how love wins. Okay? That's the summary of his book, if you want to put the best summary on it possible. And his views, as you all, we all know, we're not, we're not completely unaware of this. His views are very, very popular in our world today. They blur right from wrong. They blur justice from righteousness. They blur evil from um, good. They blind lighten, light with darkness. So The problem with Bell's assertions is not the issue that love wins, because indeed love does win. But the fact that he has an empty view of love. He defines love as, and most as what most people do in our world today, love was only a, a human experience and it has no true metaphysical authority behind it. So there's no real authority behind love. Love is just kind of what you make it to be. And therefore, I'm allowed to love and I need to express that love in any way I want because it's more sentimental and it's more human based. His view and definition of love are, in fact, if you read the Scriptures, emptied of God's holiness and justice. You can't have love unless it's based on the design of God, the creator of all the world, and it has been rooted in justice and holiness. Bell's view of love is emptied of God's law. And whenever you empty anything of God's law, you have, in fact, emptied it of its entire identity. No matter what you do, when you empty anything that's good and right in the world of God's law, it no longer uh, exists and no longer is a good thing. So yes, I said, and I'll say it again, love does win. He's right on 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 that front. He's just wrong on his conclusions of what love is and how expansive this is. Love is, in fact, an action because God himself is love. God acts in love. And how does he do so? By thwarting the reign of evil and sin in the world that has distorted what love looks like in reality. How could a loving God be so unloving as to not show, God, show people His good word and His good rule and His good law? It would be, in fact, unloving to cloak God's word. It would be, in fact, unloving to cloak God's law. There is nothing more unloving than seeking to mutilate the character and the attributes of God. And as we see through Ezekiel here, God. one of the things that God is making sure that He wants His people to see is it isn't just about your salvation that's the end goal here. What isn't always God's main motivation? We've sent it several times in Ezekiel to vindicate His name, to show forth His glory. Why? Because that is the most loving thing a God can do. He was absolute and pure glory An absolute and pure love. An absolute and pure everything as we define who God is. And when we distort one aspect of it, we can restore everything that God is. And God says, you, you don't know love. Yes, love wins. But love wins when I destroy death. That's when love wins. God restores love by vindicating His great name. Therefore, God wins when we see these things begin to f- shape, so forth in the church he wins when God's glory begins to show off and His name is rightly vindicated among the nations. There is, not, there is no other pathway toward true love than through the proper glorification of God who is the righteous King over all creation who has revealed Himself to all creation. Not only that, God wins when He saves desperate and utterly sinful people out of this world. God wins and he does that, does he not? See, he is your savior, not the world. Not Gog and Magog with all their powers and arrogance. Satan has set himself up as a pseudo-savior, has he not? Is that not what he did in the garden? He was saving Eve and saving Adam from God? God's tyrannical rule, apparently? Saying you he's hiding things from you? No, God... Saves And God loves when He sends His Son to destroy the darkness that has darkened every human heart that has ever lived since the garden. That's love. That's love. And God is our protector. We're not our own protectors. The nations aren't our protectors. God is our protector. And He assures His people He will be with them until the end. Now, when we think about this, let's just conclude with just a summary of what we just said. I'm done. Tribulation is real and it's pervasive. But don't get unnerved by that, brothers and sisters. Don't get unnerved by that. Don't be alarmed. God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned us. In fact, look at this weird little church that started seven years ago. Do you think Satan's got a grip here? He wants one. But he's failing. He's failing. Number two, God is indeed in control. Right now, he has and he will win the day. His final victory of the kingdom of darkness is nigh. We look forward to it with great hope. And last, God will be glorified in that final destruction of evil. This is one where people have a struggle with, right? Is God really like this warrior prince, this warrior king, this warrior shepherd? And the answer is yes, he is. Why? Because he's holy and he's just and he is absolutely loving to deal with death on, its own ter- on his own terms. And to destroy death in all of its forms is the most loving and most righteous thing a pure God of glory can ever do. God will be glorified in that final destruction. And it will be even more so when the day comes. And he calls Gog out. And he says, It's time. Your end isn't nigh. Amen? Father, help us this morning as we finish up our time. Thank you for this word you've given us from Ezekiel 38 and 39. And Father, I just pray that you'd help your people to think well about this time of. Around your word, we think about the future of this moment, Jesus. And Father, I just pray that you just help us now as we um, prepare for the Lord's table. As our brother Ben comes to lead us in that. And we sing songs and prepare to come. Father, just help us now to do, take this time as with joy and with, with, with glad hearts. As we now both look at the world as in all of its fear and things that it puts on our hearts. But Jesus, we now look beyond that to a day that is coming. and You will destroy evil finally and fully, forever. It's in Christ's name.